Now, I've been looking at what a no-deal Brexit implies this week. It's hard to pin down, as it could mean a lot of different things, depending on how our European neighbours react. We've looked at trade, the tariffs, the paperwork at the border, the loss of existing trade deals that we're part of through the EU. We looked yesterday at policing and justice, and under a default no-deal, the loss of access to European databases and extradition arrangements. Today, we wanted to do politics, which simply allows us to tie up some of the other aspects of No Deal. To help us through, I spoke to Anand Menon, Professor of European Politics at King's College London, Director of the UK in a Changing Europe uh, project. Uh, and now the first deal, the first issue in No Deal is what do we owe the EU? Do we just pay nothing, the 39 billion, or do we have to recognise obligations already made? Here's what Anand said. It's mixed, like with everything to do with Brexit, in the sense that there are even some people here arguing in favour of no deal who accept the fact that we will still have to pay something. Because remember, this isn't a down payment on a trade deal as, as the EU see it. It is a payment for outstanding liabilities. And they've made it clear that if we leave and try not to pay, they will litigate. Now, lots of interesting questions there. Where do you litigate something like this and how binding would the findings be? But I think you can expect a massive fight over money in the event that we try to leave without settling what the EU see as our dues. And there's no definitively accepted verdict on what we legally owe, what our actual obligations as they stand are, even in the event of no deal. My sense is there's no generally accepted legal agreement on anything, and on this particularly not. I mean, if you think back to the negotiations where this sum of 39 billion first emerged, the numbers doing the rounds varied wildly, so it was partly a political decision, this. And so I think the legal, legal situation will be very, very unclear. But as far as the matter of principle goes for the European Union, this is money we owe from the past, and so we owe it under whatever circumstances we end up leaving. OK, so plenty of room for argument on the money. Next item... Plenty of room for argument there too. Citizens' rights. We would probably unilaterally grant rights to EU citizens here, even without a deal. But what about our citizens elsewhere in Europe? Well, I think on the for the most part, no member state has an interest in punishing people who've gone to live and work there. So I think they will try and deliver. The difficulty, I suppose, on that side is the withdrawal agreement, were it to be agreed, immediately becomes law in the member state, so it's easy and it's neat. Uh, if we don't have a withdrawal agreement, we're left with 27 member states legislating on their own with all the problems that that implies. I think there's one point worth making about EU citizens here as well, which is it's all well and good for the candidates to say, yes, we'll do it anyway, it doesn't matter. From the EU's point of view, you run into that problem of enforceability. We do not have a means in this country of enshrining laws beyond the reach of Parliament, which is why, if you remember, in the withdrawal agreement, the European Court of Justice has a role for eight or nine years in overseeing the rights of citizens because they don't trust us not to simply rewrite the rules once we're out and clear. Now, one thing Anand said is that as far as most of us are concerned, current arrangements for health cover when you travel abroad uh, would lapse. They might lapse even with a deal, actually, but would have a two-year transition period to negotiate a new plan. But that brings us to the general point. No deal leaves us somewhat beholden to the decisions of the Europeans. Here's Anand again. The European Union won't at that point say to us, OK, look, we failed on withdrawal, let's talk about trade. My suspicion is the European Union will sit there, wait for us to approach them to say, can we talk about trade? And their response will be, well, yes, that will be lovely. But first, we'd like to talk about money, citizens and the Irish border. And they will essentially expect us to sign up to the deal that we haven't signed up to in the withdrawal agreement before we move on to talk about the future arrangement. The problem with that 
is we can no longer do this under Article 50. Article 50, there are many problems with Article 50, but one of the advantages is it gives us a shortcut to a deal by allowing EU leaders to sign a deal in private, in the council building, in Brussels, by qualified majority. As soon as we're out, then individual member states are going to want to have a say on whatever we sign up to. And that actually might mean that they insist on terms that are worse for us than the ones we currently have now. Okay, important point there. Now, some people might think that no deal is a good way to make it stop, to finish the Brexit process so we can all move on. Anand does not agree. Absolutely not. I can see the appeal because no deal or clean Brexit just sounds easy and it sounds like closure. But it is worth just stressing this point. No deal isn't going to be an event, it's going to be a process. And it's going to be a process almost certainly dominated by bad will on both sides, a degree of irritation and some very, very tough negotiations. And during those negotiations, the European Union is basically going to want us to sign up to the things that we failed to sign up to in the first place.